Hello, everyone, and welcome back to As We Like It, your favorite podcast in which we watch and discuss movies and, in this case, other theatrical presentations that are interpretations of or based on the work of William Shakespeare. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. All right, so thank you for joining us. Uh, if you are a regular subscriber, uh, as you noticed, we went on a bit of an unannounced summer hiatus. It was not intentional, but uh, my life and Avon and Mark's life were alternately in periods of intense turmoil. So summer was a, an interesting period for both of us. But here we are in September and ready to move on with things, get back into the academic structure. And since we are all academics, although in my case, a lay academic now, <laughs> uh, you know, what better than to start anew? So yeah, September is the new year after all, as far as I'm concerned. Or March 25th, if we're in The Lord of the Rings. But <laughs> No, that's your other podcast, John. <laughs> right, yes. Talking Tolkien, you may have heard of it. Everyone go check that out, too. Uh, if you've been listening, you'll know that we are in a bit of an unofficial Henriad uh, kick here. Because <laughs> we did My Own Private Idaho, and then we did Henry V, the Kenneth Branagh version. So mm -hmm. I decided it would be fun to introduce another one of my uh, personal passions, which is opera. So in this case... We watched a 1993 recording of a performance of the opera Falstaff by Giuseppe Verde. Verdi, sorry, not Verde. We were literally before we press record, we were joking about how people incorrectly use the pluralization of Italian words in English. And then I say Verde instead of Verdi. So here I am reifying the issue. So uh, just a quick bit about this production. It was designed and directed by Franco Zeffirelli, noted Italian film director and opera director as well slash designer um op operatically he's probably most famous for his production of lava whim at the met metropolitan opera which mm -hmm. i'm actually going to see in a month uh it'll be my Ooh. fourth time seeing it it's amazing it's i cannot overhype it enough um if you've seen the 1988 film moonstruck in which Cher won an oscar for best actress uh she is romanced <laughs> be by nicholas cage because he took her to a performance of lava whim and mm -hmm. you get to see little snippets of that uh production in the movie so same director uh but more relevant to us probably is the fact that he directed a couple of movies based on shakespeare uh the most famous one being romeo and juliet not the leo dicaprio claire danes version from 1986 <laughs> but rather the version from the 60s um which has that lovely theme da, 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 da. my mom had a, a music box that played that so he also did the version of Taming of the Shrew that starred Liz Taylor and Richard Burton and mm -hmm. uh, the 1990 production of Hamlet starring Mel Gibson. Right. So I chose specifically this recording of the opera because there are a couple of others that we could have done because, you know, it then opened the door for other Zeffirelli productions. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a little bit about uh, Verdi in the opera. This is a late opera for Verdi. He, it came out in 1893. Uh, Verdi was like 80 years old. He'd been composing for 50 years. He'd had 27 operas. And yet this was only his second comedy. Uh, it's not his first, um, it's not his first Shakespeare either. He'd done Macbeth, he'd done Otello. But like I said, now something a little more comedic. He was a little hesitant to compose another opera at 80 years with a big career behind him. But he was happy with the result, although it was not immediately successful. It took two famous uh, conductors, Toscanini and Von Carrion, to kind of bolster its reputation in the 20th century, but now it is considered part of the operatic canon. A um, little bit more about the creation of the opera. 
Uh, he, the librettist was Arrigo Boito, uh, who had worked with Verdi on a number of other operas. And uh, Boito was happy that they had picked The Merry Wives of Windsor as the uh, starting off point for their plot. Uh, it was Shakespearean, which they had had previous uh, success with, but then it itself was based on Trecento Italian works. Uh, right. yes. Little snippets of the Decameron, there's more to talk about that later. So Boito was happy that they were choosing something that ultimately had Italian roots. Uh, and to this end, uh, he used a deliberately archaic form of Italian, um, both as a nod to how Shakespeare, even you know in 1893, that was an mm. archaic form of English, but then also Shakespeare was you know, referencing an archaic Italian source. Um, much like My Own Private Idaho did, uh, it incorporates sections from Henry IV, Parts mm -hmm. 1 and 2, and Henry V, but in this case, it is mostly based on The Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, there, this is not the only operatic production of The Merry Wives. There's a German Zingspiel from the 1840s by Otto Nicolai. If you're not familiar with opera, a Zingspiel is what we would consider today to be a musical in which most of the plot is done by people speaking and then there's mm. singing interludes, but it's still opera, you know, as compared to a musical, which is kind of... Meh, meh, meh. Um, Different kinds of music, as a musical style, you mean, yeah. Ex exactly. But even when you're doing a zingspiel, when people are talking, it is very dramatic and animated. <laughs> uh, right. The, the most Just like that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The most famous zingspiel is probably Mozart's Die Zoberflute, uh, otherwise right. known as the Magic Flute which includes the Queen of the Night aria. Yeah, I can probably turn most of this out, but a little bit of background. Um, so that version only really ever been successful in Germany, German-speaking countries. However, since I just mentioned Die Zoberflute, if you have seen the movie Amadeus, of course, there's a famous scene in Die Zoberflute in which that song, uh, Queen of the Night, uh, is basically Mozart is inspired to write that song based on the endless uh, and shrill droning of his mother-in-law. Well, <laughs> another version, uh, another operatic version of The Merry Wives of Windsor was written by none other than Salieri, the protagonist of mm. Amadeus, both the stage show and the movie. Uh, interestingly enough, his version was an attempt to replicate the success of Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. So a couple of interesting things here. Marriage of Figaro, also an adaptation of a play. Um, however, have, have either of you seen The Marriage of Figaro? No, I've seen snippets of it and I've heard, I've heard it. Uh, we'll get into this later, but I've heard various operas on the Met broadcasts on mm -hmm. Saturday at the opera, but I haven't seen it. I so, have seen it, but a long time ago, so mm -hmm. I don't remember. So this is the first well. time I had seen the opera Falstaff and I was amazed by how similar the plot is to... Mm. Uh, Marriage of Figaro, which is basically, I mean, characters are going to change, but Figaro is a servant and he wants to marry Susanna, who is also a servant in the household. And Figaro is betrothed to someone else and they have to trick him out of that marriage. And then right. the, the head of the household wants to sleep with everybody. And so his wife conspires with people to catch him in the act and everybody gets set up. And it's about infidelity and cheating and double crossing in a very comedic sense. And so watching that, comparing it to... Uh, Mary Wives of Windsor, the, the two texts uh, very, very, very clearly lie within the same uh, kind of approach to opera buffa. There's also, finally, one last other version of this um, that was written for the English language in 1929 by Rafe von Williams, the English mm. composer, titled mm. Sir John in Love. However, uh, 
Falstaff, the Verdi production, is by far the most famously and frequently produced one and is generally considered to be, alongside Verdi's Otello, the best operatic interpretations of Shakespeare. Right. So that's me. That's <laughs> that's my vomit of information. That's the opera nerd within me coming out. Uh, if there's anything we need to discuss uh, that's more on the Mirror Wives of Windsor side, let's do that now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very good because neither of us is particularly an opera expert. Hmm. And Mark, you know a little more than I do from your music training, but neither of us is big. So it, you're, you're our opera expert for this. So it's good that you give us that background. You hadn't seen it, though, before, right, John? Correct. Yeah. So we've all just seen it for the first time in this case. When it comes to 19th century opera, there's a big divide. Uh, are you a Wagnerian or do you right, prefer right. Kind of Italians? Right. And for the most part, I'm actually a Wagnerian. I once went on a date with a guy who asked me if I had to sacrifice Wagner or Debussy, which would I do? And I immediately <laughs> said that I did not want to live in a world without Wagner. Now, I understand why people don't like Wagner, and I do love Italian opera of the same period. However, once you get to the Italian opera side of things, it's Puccini versus Verdi, and mm -hmm. I'm more of a Puccini person, so my, my experience with Verdi is not the best. I am not learned enough in opera to have preferences. <laughs> my, so I'll just give you a little capsule of my background in opera, which is almost exclusively... So first of all, I've listened to Saturday Afternoon at the Opera from the Met on CBC... CBC Two. That means nothing to anyone except other Canadians. But CBC, <laughs> what used to be CBC FM and is now CBC Two, uh, plays the Met broadcast of the opera uh, every Saturday during the season, and I've listened to that a fair amount. So that's probably my biggest exposure to actual opera. The other is through performance when I studied voice and did uh, did voice lessons, and I learned various, you know, some of the very cliched basic. Uh, arias and sang some things so I have a little tiny bit of uh, and, and at that time I also bought some CDs and listened to uh, some contraltos and sopranos singing some of the music that I was singing so that's sort of my pretty much the range of my exposure to opera over time I've enjoyed it but I've it's never been something I've attended in, in my case as chance would have it as a high school project I wrote an essay looking at Verdi's Otello <laughs> <laughs> and comparing it to to the Shakespeare play as a, as an English right. uh, class project. So that, that, uh... that's one of those things that um, you immediately say, and I could not be less surprised. That that's <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember <laughs> basically fair. nothing about what I said in this paper. So, <laughs> what you didn't pull it out? Come on, Mark. I don't think I have it anymore. It's long <laughs> lost. But you have done a little bit of opera study too, because a little bit, yeah. I've done I've done some music history in, mm -hmm. in which we covered a bit of opera. But other than I don't that. know a whole lot about nineteenth century opera, though. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so we were coming to it pretty sort of cold, and I mean, what do you? What was your first reaction? <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it a lot, actually. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> once we once we figured out how to access it through the met website which was incredibly obscure but yeah got their that... <laughs> website is very i mean i think it's purposefully designed to obfuscate mm -hmm. to a certain extent but that's not i don't know yeah it, it, it was not set up to it was it allowed you to rent for a completely reasonable cost but it didn't want you to rent it <laughs> it wanted you to become a subscribed member etc cetera, etc cetera. anyway we did finally find it and once we did yeah we it was fun we watched it over a couple of nights and it was quite amusing i wasn't really sure what to expect going in and the very first 
few scenes, the captioning was really, really fast yeah. and we could not possibly keep up with it, which was a little disconcerting, but it settled down and we also got into the realization that it didn't actually matter if we picked up every single line. <laughs> That's <laughs> that the secret really about important. opera. <laughs> it's uh, not and that, actually, important. That, that was actually something that I was wondering is I noticed at a couple of points, the captions rhymed and yes. I, yes. I was wondering if that was a case in which the caption writers were just having some fun or mm -hmm. if the text was close enough to Shakespeare that they just used the original Shakespeare. Yeah, and I, I wondered that too and I have to admit I didn't check. But I think they did, just having a skim through the text, I think they did, in places anyway, pretty much take the Shakespeare and use that as the captioning, even if it wasn't probably a perfect translation of the Italian. There, because mm -hmm. I just I saw a few phrases and things that I seem to remember from it. So I think they did probably use the Shakespeare where they could, and why not? Of course. Yeah. So first things first, when we start this recording, uh, we start with my favorite tradition from the Metropolitan Opera. the The Opera House itself is, I mean, amazing. Um, massive, very very sixties because it's built in the sixties. Uh, kind of exploded style chandelier in the middle and then 12 mm -hmm. smaller ones around the uh, rim of the theater. They're called Sputniks. And at the beginning <laughs> of every performance, all 12 chandeliers rise in unison to the ceiling. And <laughs> if you've never been to the Met before, it's just like the most spectacular thing. <laughs> so anyway, we, we get started. And like I said, I don't know anything about Verity. Well, I guess I know more about Verdi than the average passerby, but I really don't know anything about Verdi. So I don't know if this is unusual for Verdi, but we start off immediately in the action. There's no... No overture. Overture. There's, mm -hmm. yeah. There's no kind of introduction. Prologue you know. thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes you'll have characters come on and they'll sing about their wants for a while or kind of monologue mm -hmm. or you'll trade that off. You That's very common. introduced or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that does not happen. You, you start off immediately... Uh, in a scene in a scene and people are accusing Falstaff of stealing from them. Mm -hmm. And and you already sort of know who everybody, or at least it's sort of presented as if you already know who everybody is and you already understand their basic characters and it's just being, um, you just jump in. Yeah. And one thing I love about opera is there are so many different ways that you can use the form of opera. You know, you can be like Wagner in which you're like, opera is a storytelling device. And you're like very, very dedicated to it, serious about that. You know, if you listen to the ring cycle, he creates, you know, myriad leitmotifs and each leitmotif represents a different character or theme or event. And the way they're interwoven together is actually part of the narrative. And you only come to like a full understanding because of the way that, you know, your, your ability to understand these leitmotifs as they happen, like that's mm -hmm. using opera as a storytelling device. But then there's kind of the other alternative, which is more like what we're seeing here in Italy. Uh, also, I mean, with Mozart, not necessarily Italian, although Marriage of Figaro is in Italian, um, in which opera is just a vehicle for music and you need a plot. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's, that, that's the case with Marriage of Figaro. That's the case with Falstaff, I feel. It's an opportunity for music. Exactly. The plot is an opportunity for music. It, the music and the plot, I mean, they, they complement each other, but it's just a, a framework on which to hang your music. Yes. And my, my problem with that approach to opera is that far too often it leads to the same cliches, which is where the tenor will just randomly in the middle of everything, because it's established that the tenor has a lamentrist, just he will take an aside and start singing directly to the audience. It'll be a five or six minute long aria about 
the like the beautiful and true and sweet nature of love and then he'll just stop and he'll take a bow and everybody will applaud happens time and time and time again in this kind of opera and i understand why because you know you're writing you're a composer you're writing you want to have that showcasing for your your tenor exactly because the way we treat opera now is very differently from the way they treated opera 150 years ago and that would be your standout piece and people would tour and only sing that or they do selections from it so you know that's the way it was presented so one thing i really enjoyed about Falstaff as an opera is I mean there were certainly were elements of that but overall it was more targeted towards the kind of the comedy of the story especially once you Mm -hmm. get past Mm -hmm. act one and and act two when it's really about the uh you know the machinations and then I actually Falstaff I actually felt and this is a very sort of um well I I I don't even know how to characterize many of the pieces in the opera as a whole because I just don't know the vocabulary of opera well enough but I almost felt that there weren't very many set pieces um, arias or standalone pieces there were fewer than I expected I expected everyone to stop so that somebody could sing something extraordinary for me every so often and they didn't so it it felt more ensemble isn't quite the right word but it felt more like an ensemble the music just kept continuing on. I couldn't always tell where one piece ended and when another one started in a way that is different than my experience of some other operas. So I think that's maybe what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's also worth noting, this is a very quick opera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three acts, two hours, five minutes. That is incredibly short. <laughs> For opera, yes. <laughs> I have sat through some long operas. And the worst, I mean, I love the Met deeply, but the worst thing about going to an opera at the Met is every intermission is 30 minutes long. Oi, that's a long time. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, it was pretty short. And and it moved very quickly. Now, it also had an immensely complicated plot, but I don't think that's Verdi's fault. Or, not fault, but, I mean, it was... He, he already, I mean, well... well he inherits he, it from the Merry yeah. Wives of Windsor, which has this... Re- I mean, in fact, he simplifies it quite, it's quite a, a bit, bit yes. from Merry Wives of Windsor, which has at least two other subplots that are not included here. And thank goodness, because I, I can't imagine how you could possibly keep track I went to reread or to read the Merry Wives of Windsor for this. And I will admit now I did not read it properly all the way through because it's really hard to read and I didn't understand most of it. <laughs> <laughs> I read the introduction and the introduction said, you know, there are three characters in this whose English is barely passable and mostly incomprehensible, which adds to the <laughs> difficulty of the plot. And I thought, oh, I can't handle this. It's got a Welshman who can't speak, who's, who's you know, written it with all the bees as peas and all the etc you know like with the dialect put in it's got a frenchman so that the doctor character in the Mary wives is a frenchman the one who's supposed to marry the the young girl mm-hmm. but doesn't is a frenchman in the original plot and he speaks in this broken frenchified english and then there's pistol who speaks in such a way that everything is so wildly metaphorical and illustrative and complex that nobody can understand him and then there's Bardolph, who also is barely comprehend- passable as an English speaker. So, you know, four of the major characters in the play are deliberately almost impossible to understand. <laughs> so I didn't read it properly all the way through. <laughs> I mean, and I will say, one thing I do when I go to the opera is, I mean, I try to, and the nice thing about the Met is the subtitles are actually on the mm-hmm. back of the seat in front of you, so you can disable them entirely or okay. choose the language you want to read them in. Most operas you go to, the titles are going to be projected to a scrim at the, thing, at the yeah. top of the screen mm-hmm. um so if it's in a language i mostly understand like italian i'll try to go without them 
mm-hmm. and I'll just read the, you know, a few. There's always a, a, a brief summary that's a couple of paragraphs long, I'll and always gonna happen, yeah. I'll, I'll read that and just for the act I'm about to watch, and then watch it happen. That way, you don't have to flip back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that when watching this as well, just because I, I don't. I mean, I had the subtitles up, but I just hate kind of fanning back and forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very, very confusing for me that there was a character whose name was Quickly, because as <laughs> as I'm reading, uh, you know, the little summary, it would be like Quickly enters, and I was like, wait, who Quickly enters? And I was like, oh yes, <laughs> Quickly, comma, it's just Quickly, yes. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and to be fair, that's also very confusing for anybody who's watched who's watched or read uh, Henry the Fourth and Fifth before, because of course, Mistress Quickly. Is a different character. Is a different character in those plays than she is in this play. She's, uh, in fact, the love interest of Falstaff, sort of, in 4 and 5, Henry 4 and 5. And here she's made to the French in Mary Wise Windsor. She's a maid to the French doctor, somewhat in- inexplicably. So, yes, yeah, she's a complicated, <laughs> confusing character anyway, and has a crazy name. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, to that end, as you were saying, the plot is very convoluted and <laughs> I, I, I don't even know that it would be who has to try and explain what the plot is. No, basically, I mean, the the key element that sort of triggers everything is Falstaff sends love letters to two married women because he, he figures he'll try his luck and if he can have an affair with one or the other, both of them hold the purse strings in their marriages and will give him money. That's the basic reason he does it. They compare notes see that they've both had the letter exact same letter with their names only changed from both of it from him and decide to get their revenge by tricking him by pretending to go along with it and then tricking him into various embarrassing situations um and that's what the rest of the play is 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 that and then the inevitable farcical machinations that in result and with the husband being jealous and confused and then there's also a subplot the, with the love subplot yeah the love subplot of uh, the daughter of one of those wives wants to marry someone but her father doesn't want her to and in the end they get married <laughs> <laughs> through various trickery then that's that's really all that's important from a plot point of view it just well, sets up farce yeah. and and the beautiful part is the Act three is when they're one, they, they've tricked Falstaff, meet me in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. You know, that's when we will uh, kind of yeah, consummate we'll... our affair. Um, but then they're also going to, uh, at the same time, e- kind of execute the trick where they get to marry off the couple who wants to be married. Mm-hmm. Um, but the entire thing is staged as this like paranormal, <laughs> f- fantastic we'll trick him into the forest and then we'll all dress up as fairies and elves and we'll get, get a bunch of kids dressed up as fairies and we'll pretend they're fairies and then we'll punch him a lot and then he'll feel very sorry for himself and then oh also we'll marry off my daughter yes. is the story oh and he has to dress himself up as Hearn the Hunter so he wears a bunch of a pair of horns on his head Yes, and that's what I enjoyed the most is just watching this happen because any mm-hmm. scene like that is going to be a goldmine for an opera director, especially someone as traditionalist as uh, Zeffirelli mm-hmm. because there's a big debate in the world of opera, kind of the European style, which is going to be very interpretive, and the American style, which is going to be a lot more conservative. Um, you know, you, you go see an opera in Europe today and it, it, anything could happen. It could be, you know... Mm-hmm. The Marriage of Figaro is retold by teens who are sexting each other. 
Mm-hmm. I, 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 that's an exaggeration, but not, not much of one. Mm-hmm. And uh, opera in America is very much more traditionalist, which I think is interesting, but not going to speak on that further mm-hmm. right now. Um, Zeffirelli is noted for how traditional his perform, uh, his, uh, mm-hmm. it was very literal, are. if very you can literal. say that. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it said it in a period that made sense for Shakespeare and, and or for Verdi. And it was, it followed what you would expect the text to say, if you see what I mean, in terms of its staging. There yeah. Was nothing, there was nothing complicated or surprising about its staging. And, and mo- yeah, mostly I was thinking about, I mean, one with the last scene where it's everybody in costume, mm-hmm. but also just in t- the opera in general, the, pr- the, mm-hmm. you know, the production that we saw is very, I mean, you look at it, act one, scene two, which is when they're at the end mm-hmm. and they're kind of in the courtyard at the end. And it is just a pastiche of like, hey, this is like England in the Middle Ages, you know? Mm-hmm. Just like the if way thought, that it was. If you think of England in the Middle Ages, this is what you will think of it as. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, the beauty of the Met Opera is that you have a stage that is 50 feet tall and 50 feet wide and 70 feet deep. So there's a lot you can do. And I mean, that doesn't sound large in general. But that is super large by yeah, for a stage, yeah. For a for proscenium. And Zeffirelli really takes advantage of that. So I mean, you have this just kind of courtyard where everything is in this kind of mock Tudor style, stucco mm-hmm. and you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the post construction. And all of the costumes were very traditionalist as well. Mm-hmm. My issue, I guess, and this is not a criticism of the opera, is in watching it in a recording, you know, a video recording. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opera is very clearly designed to be seen. You know, you're sitting hundreds of feet away. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, on the th- second or third or fourth tier of the balconies. So everything is exaggerated. And when you watch yeah. it in a video performance, all of those exaggerations become face value. Mm-hmm. And I mean, opera, so- soap operas are called soap operas for a reason. Like you, as you get into opera, you very quickly learn that it is not an art form for nuance. It so. is not a subtle art. <laughs> no, it is not a subtle art form. Yes. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, personally, I find it a little distracting because, like, the design is mm-hmm. one area where you do get that subtlety. Like, I find it a little distracting not getting that. But that's, you know, in 1993, before the Met had really, like, aggressively expanded their video recording and they didn't do the mm-hmm. live and HD presentations. And so, you know, that was just kind of my experience in watching it at home. Yeah. Well, I mean, I felt that very much for the, in terms of the acting. I mean, that was, a th- but I, I, I felt like this is how opera is acted. And of course they're playing to the back seats. How right. else could, yeah. I mean, how else do you do it? it? It's true of, it's true of filmed theater yeah. even, but opera is 10 times that. Uh, you're trying to get across an awful lot because not everybody's going to understand all the words you're saying and you're trying to simplify the sort of action. So the, and this is comedy too so it's going to be even more so i mean falstaff's facial expressions and gestures and everybody else's were uh, i mean they were to the point of parody in terms of how broad they looked when you were watching it as you say on a on a film recording rather than from the but i it didn't take me long to sort of feel like okay well that's just that's just what this is that's okay i don't it didn't bother me and and because it was comedy too it was funny you know, it's over-exaggerated facial expressions and gestures don't seem terribly out of place for a comedy. I think I might have found it more distracting 
in a tragic setting or something like that where it would seem kind of comic which would seem wrong i on that note i would say that one of what i noted in terms of this as a shakespearean adaptation mm. shakespearean comedy is itself pretty broad in places and absurd you know and and kind of and it also relies on a whole bunch of conventions that have to do with theater and it really felt to me that this really pointed it highlighted the absurdity of shakespearean conventions by making them into operatic conventions and just how ridiculous they are and i'm thinking of things like the scene where falstaff gets shut into the laundry basket <laughs> which was just i mean it was very funny and it was it was highly entertaining but it was utterly completely totally ridiculous not just because everybody was running around doing ridiculous things but you you know the the convention that somebody can make an aside to the audience or that the audience can hear somebody saying oh no i'm trapped within this box or something well not and, just say and it, nobody though. else would hear it but he, now when it's an opera yeah. and he's singing, singing <laughs> he, he, he opens up the lid of the lottery box sticks his head out and projects dramatically. Yeah, to the very back of this of the, of well, the hall while the I orchestra am... is backing him <laughs> and meanwhile the man he's hiding from is what three feet away and is like where is Falstaff I can't see Falstaff where could Falstaff be and meanwhile you at this very same time as that's going on and, and to a certain extent I feel like this is Verity doing this very deliberately because it just it makes it all so ridiculous but at the very same time you have hidden behind a screen the lovers having a passionate love duet which is apparent like again in Shakespeare that would be a whispered you know right. sort of whispered aside or a soliloquy which would all require a suspension of disbelief anyway for you to believe that somebody could stand there and talk and nobody else could hear him. But when, they're, when it's a tenor and a soprano singing their love duet to the back of the hall, meanwhile, two feet away, nobody notices they're there. I mean, it, while Falstaff is also singing in the laundry basket and and the two merry wives are both singing about how funny it is that Falstaff is in the in the basket and their husband can't he can't see him while the husband is standing there singing about where he is. I mean, it just, it, it, you know, that's in Shakespeare too, but you kind of get used to sort of pretending that these things are not quite as ludicrous as they are. And it was completely impossible to overlook its ludicrousness <laughs> in a amusing way. It didn't upset me, but it was just, it was very silly. <laughs> On the subject of uh, looking at this as an adaptation of, of Shakespeare, I have a, a wild theory that I want to try out here. Um, and, and it has to do with um, basically the romantic reception of Shakespeare. Of course, the romantics, uh, you know, loved Shakespeare. Um, and there was kind of a cult of Shakespeare. Uh, and especially in well, Europe, uh, Shakespeare was being translated into, you know, German and uh, Probably and Italian as well. And the the original Klingon, let us not forget. <laughs> yes, that's right. I think right. that's um, a little post-romantic. <laughs> one of uh, Wagner's first operas, which nobody considered to be very successful, was also an adaptation of Shakespeare. Right. All right. And uh, specifically, uh, I kind of see this this opera as a, a kind of comic undercutting of the capital R romantic hero, the sort of mm. Byronic hero, uh, the, the sort of um dissolute um flawed character whose whose character flaws paradoxically make ennoble him, him. Yeah, make him make, and and 
in a sense, uh, the, the character of Falstaff is sort of the, the flip side of this, right? Because his, his shortcomings make him comic rather than ennoble him. But, he, but there's this one scene where he, he sort of plays the, the, the romantic hero. I think it's um, at the beginning of Act 3, the scene right after the, the basket scene, right? Yes, when he's, when, 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 yes the scene that actually is And he has this very serious, he's very pathetic, and he has this very serious aria. Um, and he's playing this sort of, you know, romantic, capital R romantic hero. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, the whole it's embedded in this, this ridiculous farce. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the whole opera ends with with an aria that basically says it's all just a joke. Yes, everybody laugh. This is all just ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought it was a, a kind of interesting undercutting of the the that sort of romanticism. Mm hmm. And what I find interesting about the the end of the opera, and I don't know Mary Wise of Windsor, so I don't know, like, is that statement, like, everything's a joke, is that from the play, or is that... No, that's Verdi adding it. Okay, that, because... Or the librettist or whatever, but yeah. To me, what that read as was all the world's a stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, of course, is as you like it, not as we like it, but... <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's not in Merry Life. Merry Wives ends, that's one of the few things I actually checked. Merry Wives ends, the, the bit that matters here is Mrs. Page, so the one who's uh, not Mrs. Ford, but the other Merry Wife. Right. Uh, saying, well, I'll muse no further. Master Fenton, heaven, give you many, many merry days. Good husband, let us everyone go home and laugh this sport o'er by a country fire. Sir John and all. So it... In a sense, it is kind of that idea that at the end, let us all go home and laugh. Even Sir John, yeah. we're all reconciled and we will reconcile in laughter. So I think Verdi is expanding that. But the the more explicit expansion that there is at the end there with everybody laugh, everyone will laugh, whatever you do, we will all laugh together. That's Verdi. Okay, yeah. Well, or Boito probably. Yeah. But what you were saying, Mark, about kind of the playing on romantic conceptions that's one thing that i still find supremely confusing and you know i've <laughs> i've been an academic and i've been involved in you know textual criticism for what almost a decade now and translating different um artistic movements between different media is still so freaking difficult to try and like <laughs> get across because you know when i say romantic in literature and romantic in music you mean entirely two different things that happened at the same time and maybe are kind of conceptually related for me i'm not the best at doing this with romantic but i'm going to go instead with baroque because when i say baroque within the context of architecture i think almost like n there are no rules or well i mean if anything the baroque architecture is you know what the rules are and you're pushing them and breaking them in specific ways because you it's a commentary on what the rules are, how they're defined, and in doing so, you create this visual style that, you know, 400 years later, we look at it, we look at what Borromini did, and we think it's a little gaudy and a little too much. But you listen to Bach, you know, Baroque music, and we define that as very orderly and precise, and mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, it's, it's the kind of the definition of formalism mm -hmm. um, in Western music. Mm -hmm. uh, and to me, those are two entirely different things. And the only really connecting thread I've been able to f to figure out in my own kind of interpretation of it is that they both depend on this intense knowledge of what the rules are. So mm. in, in kind of the Baroque visual scene, 
uh, you know what the rules are and you're breaking them in an informed manner. Whereas Baroque within music, you know what the rules are and you're not breaking the rules, but rather you're instead showing of, off your mastery of them. Is exactly. And, and that is the art in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that Baroque is the way that you use the rules and that's kind of what makes Beethoven Beethoven is he's like a Baroque romantic. I mean, he's classical period, not Baroque, but I mean, Beethoven is able to use the rules perfectly and his music theory is spot on, but he's also able to kind of transition into music as this expressive tool rather than just, you know, Bach or Mozart where it's exactly. And so when you talk about, you know, romantic Mark, uh, and especially with the kind of literary reception of Shakespeare versus the, in this case, kind of the romantic opera. And I mean, 1893 is a little late for that. It's as a bit well. late, yeah. But when he mean, was 80 years old then. I think we can count Verdi, Verdi as being of the romantic of the generation. Yeah, earlier generation. Yeah. So that's th- fair. this is uh, a long rambling way of me saying uh, these things are, they mean different things in different uh, media. So how do you see how do you see literary romanticism informing the music or musical romanticism informing the text? Well, I guess I see it uh, romanticism in both cases as a reaction against what came before. I mean, that's the easiest way to define it is to think of romanticism as a reaction against neoclassicism. Um, and that makes sense both in terms of literature and in terms of music um and of, and of course neoclassicism in regards to music is just classicism classicism <laughs> yes the classical period mozart yeah. um a reaction against the the kind of perfect forms of of classical music or or 18th century literature um breaking of the rules and a championing uh, championing of um the individual perspective and uh emotionalism and imagination so that's how I see romanticism um, in, in, I think, both those cases. Um, and I, I guess it's, it's out of that that there's this sort of love of, of Shakespeare and uh, the... And a, an interpretation of Shakespeare as, again, a, the perspective of the individual, the individual and yeah. the priority of emotion. Yeah. So reading Shakespeare as an emotional reaction rather than reading it as a love of wordplay or a playing with genre or something yeah. like that, which is a different way of reading Shakespeare. Hmm. Which is also, I guess, very unusual for the way that I was taught to read Shakespeare. Well, yeah. I mean, everyone comes to Shakespeare with their own... Well, their own period. With their own period. Uh, in mind, in a, yeah. to some extent. Yeah. We aren't reading Shakespeare like 19th century read Shakespeare. No. By any means. Okay, so my int- what I thought was that it was... The Merry Wives of Windsor itself, to take a different step back, felt like its own kind of undercutting of Shakespeare. So it was. I thought it was very interesting that the final act of the, of, of the, the play? of well of the play and also of the opera, so this meeting in the forest was seemed like such a parody and pastiche of other of Shakespearean other Shakespeare. plays. Yeah, right yeah. and. I mean, so they meet in the forest and they're fair, it's the, they dress up like the queen of the fairies. So that seems like an obvious callback. Um, the whole fairy scene seems like an obvious reference to the Midsummer's Night's Dream. Yeah. Reference, yeah. right? Yeah. With the, the fairy court. 
and they're all dressing. So it's a parody of it because here they are dressing up and pretending to be the fairy court when he's already had a play that was actually the fairy court. And then you've also got uh, Macbeth's witches because you've got the witches coming and this is more in the opera perhaps played up than it is, but you know, the witches coming and his, Oh no, Falstaff has to be scared of all the witches coming. Well, and, and the, got, the, the um, bit, the bit where Falstaff was popping out of that laundry hamper to sing reminded me a lot of the banquet Macbeth. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's now true. that's probably more the opera than the Shakespeare. I, I think so. Yes. <laughs> but you're right. Um, and even like much to do about nothing with the double wedding yeah, and the veiled yeah, wedding and the right. whole substitution of the bride and who do you, who are you marrying and you know where it's very tragic in much ado even though it's a comedy but that scene is all very tragic with him thinking he's marrying the cousin but it's actually his restored bride blah 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 and here you have just the total uh, lunacy of having um, who is it is it pistol or bar or whoever is dressed up as the bride. The, bo- the man who's dressed right, up yeah. as the bride yeah, yeah. and the false double marriage uh, seems like a complete parody of Much Ado there. So it just seemed like it was Shakespeare writing yeah. a parody of himself. Well, I think that the play was believed to have been written quite quickly. So he mm-hmm. may have been, um, you know, being economical in mm-hmm. reusing material. But it wasn't. But it's not just that he reuses it. He reuses it in a way that seems to me to, to point to, to its point absurdity, to it. yep. right? Mm-hmm. To, to point out how silly, look, I'm going to have them dress up and pretend to be the fairy court. Isn't it funny that I did a whole play about the fairy court? Doesn't this point out how absurd that sort of tawdry dress up really? Midsummer's Night Dream is just a bunch of people putting on costumes and cavorting around and pretending to be fairies. You know, there is a sort of almost meta-theatrical um, point yeah. to doing that. Well, this is something that, that Shakespeare... Um, often did if you look at the the which is why I wish I'd looked up exactly when it came. But if you look at uh, at the sort of cluster of plays mm-hmm. that Shakespeare is writing right around the same time, he often will kind of reuse ideas, mm-hmm. and sometimes he'll he'll kind he'll use an he'll he'll have a sort of comedic version and a tragic version. Right, right. So Romeo and Juliet <clears throat> was written, um, I think, around the same time as. Uh, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, the, right. the Pyramus and Thisbe. Oh yeah, yeah. Bit, yeah. In, in the sort of tragic lovers with the um, mistaken parted by the wall, and, the by the wall and, and thinking thinking that the other is dead and but, mm-hmm. but really isn't, um, is basically a, a comedic version of Romeo and Juliet. Right. Um, so he he certainly does do that kind of um, you know self referencing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that really stood out to me at the and of course, since Mary Wives is sort of building on Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, that's already happening too. But but yeah, that that final scene or final act really seemed to pull that out. And I thought that the um, staging of it helped highlight that. Like I feel like Verdi and then Zeffirelli were complicit in that. They, they sort of in that kind of parody of the other Shakespearean types. Right. That it seemed, especially with the witches and the way they were portrayed and things like that, that it seemed um, like they were kind of aware of what was going on and were trying to highlight it. Mm-hmm. I have a line in my notes that just says, animals! <laughs> <laughs> and so I just want to bring that up because I don't really know how else to work it in. But there were animals <laughs> in the play, the horse and the like, sheep That's true. on yeah. stage. Yeah. made me laugh really hard because I just thought... Because, you know, it's not hard enough to put an opera on 
you've decided you have to put animals on the stage that are completely unnecessary from the text. Like, there's nothing in the text that absolutely requires them. But no, you've just decided that you need to make it that much more complicated. You need to have the girl riding a horse, and then there's people with the sheep, and there's other various animals around. at least they didn't have a bear. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Wait until you see... Zeffirelli's production of Labawim because <laughs> scene two of, La- or sorry, act two of Labawim is probably one of the best known moments in opera for good reasons. It's a tour de force of music. Um, and the act takes place at, in the Latin quarter of Paris during Christmas. And it's like the Christmas market and right. they go into a cafe and someone's kind of ex-lover comes up and they're flirting and then they kind of get caught in this whirlwind and then they leave the cafe together and a a marching band passes by. And so in his production of this, Mm -hmm. the, um, I don't spoil this for anybody. So if you ever are possibly going to the Met, skip forward like 30 seconds. (laughs) Um, The curtain raises and I've seen it three times. Every single time people have just spontaneously applauded because the stage, which I described earlier is, you know, how Mm -hmm. massive it is, is literally two stories and there are about 130 people on the stage. And it is such an incredible like experience. Like You see it and people just gasp for the first time because they've never seen anything like it. And throughout the stage, I mean, there are parts of it that are indoors. You go indoors, like kind of a wall opens up and you see inside and then they come back outside. And at one point, there's a horse-drawn carriage that just comes across. <laughs> it's like the, the horse is in the opera for like 15 seconds, but the, damn it, the horse is there. And <laughs> that's, what, that's what I felt about this horse. I was like... That's I could just imagine how much work it is to have this horse on that stage, and it's there for uh, like two minutes and <laughs> utterly unnecessary. And yet, it must be so practically difficult to have that horse but, there. But this is Zeffirelli at the Met, and then <laughs> to cap it off at the end, when the marching band comes, they start on the top level, and like a forty-piece band comes marching down. They march <laughs> down the stairs in the middle, and then they turn and they march all the way to the other side and off the stage. And it's, I mean, the, you see this and you understand why the Mets' operating budget is like four hundred million dollars a year. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had a whole while we were watching that last scene too. I had a whole sort of part of my brain that was trying to figure out exactly how much work it was to have that many children sit on the stage and how much effort it must be to make sure that being taught and how do you do that and how much you know they can't work for very many hours and nights so how many second studies do you have to have because you can't probably have them all performing every evening because that's not what you can allow to do with children (laughs) it just seemed it seemed very extreme that's what i loved about the children they they looked like they were having so much fun they did they really did and it probably didn't hurt that they were sheets and things for them yeah (laughs) silly cotton uh silly costumes and stuff like that yeah yeah totally and they were like okay now dance around look like fairies and pinch people (laughs) that's pretty good direction i mean the whole thing let me just say it was beautiful it was gorgeous to look at and it was you know rich and full i mean i don't think that's a surprise but just i should mention that the costumes the sets the staging the staging of that whole last act was very lovely with the lighting and everything it was it was really attractive and engrossing to watch Mm -hmm. a couple of other things i just wanted to mention that were just things that stood out and they're both in the play originally but also highlighted by the staging um the emphasis on and the play with cuckoldry yeah caught our attention uh both because it was funny and sort of well-developed, but also 
<laughs> I don't know how to phrase this because cuckoldry, cuckolding is something we're interested in. That doesn't sound right at no, all. No, right at all. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, you had that entire podcast episode and then That's you right. found the picture of the, of the of the cock with the spur cut off and mounted to its forehead. Yeah, yeah exactly. It that's I'm trying to find a way of phrasing the fact that cuckolds are a research interest. It's a really research interest for us. Not not really not related to the fetish, which is totally acceptable as long as it's presented within a uh, an understanding and accepting relationship. (laughs) Yes, that is fine for those who are interested in it, but it is not particularly our interest. We are interested in the historical manifestation of the word cuckold. And various signs and, and symbols, symbols that have been associated yeah. with it. And yes, there's a whole, we marked it a video on it, and then we did a podcast about it. And I will just say that both the video and the podcast episode are our most viewed and downloaded <laughs> episodes. <laughs> I always have I this, wonder why. I always have this vision of people who are looking for something very different and then get the etymology of cuckold. And I always have this hope. A few people kick or stick around and are like, oh, that's that a thing I've learned now. <laughs> and then move on with their day. Well, anyway. I mean, if it's anything if it's anything like my podcast, our episode entitled The Hobbit Part 4 is <laughs> the, by far the most popular episode, most popular viewed page people. on our website. Because people search for The Hobbit movie. Literally, the, the bounce rate from that page is 93 <laughs> percent exactly yeah the the cuckold video until we added a word history connections as the end part of the title and then suddenly our views dropped off um <laughs> but for for a long time if i looked at retention rates the t- five to ten second viewing of that video was long apparently the first five seconds of you talking to the camera, Mark, were not what they were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, all to say that it was interesting, mm-hmm. actually, to see, I mean, the pl- the emphasis on horns and mm-hmm. the fr- reference to Acteon's horns, which yes. is one of the yeah. theories about where the idea that horns are the sign of the cuckold comes from. I thought it was all, that was all very interesting. Um, and that may be uh, an actual line in Shakespeare. I think, it, I think because, that's from the, um, that, that, connection with Acteon was a particular renaissance um mm-hmm. yeah i think that i think that connection. is and certainly the idea that he was going to wear the her- wear the horns for that scene yeah uh, and then you know the, the humor of all of that was def- is definitely in the merry wives so yeah there's a whole bit where he talks about um falstaff talks about uh, how gods have turned themselves into horned beasts in order to find women right and so it's fine for him to put on horns to wander the forest Zeus you put on the horns for Europa and then the other point I just wanted to make was um, one that made me slightly uncomfortable which is the uh, play all the way through the incessant sort of humor at the expense of Falstaff's fatness Hmm. um, which was very funny Uh, we were both very taken with the phrase amorous whale for instance (laughs) near the beginning (laughs) and yet I felt quite bad about laughing about it because of my modern sensibilities about you know fat shaming and all the rest of it and I realized that's anachronistic in my response in terms of sort of what the cultural mores are but I did but I just thought that was an interesting sort of clash between my modern sensibilities and I don't it's funny I don't feel nearly as bad about watching them um, play out their antiquated gender roles as I did about feeling bad about the mockery of his fatness. Well, but think also like the way that fatness plays with regards to opera. Yes. 
well, no, and, and there's a lot going on there. I'm, I'm not suggesting they shouldn't have played it up at, in, in any way, because first of all, it's in the play and it's in the opera. They couldn't possibly avoid it. It's, it's the defining characteristic of Falstaff. I mean, he is a fat man and he, and he is proud of his fatness for the record, right? Mm. In the play and in the, in the opera, he considers his fatness to be a sign of his, his girth. He keeps going on about how big he is and his girth and his nobility because he's uh, rich and, or, or he's not, but he, it, that it's a sign of his sort of well-being and his strength and his prosperity in his life. So it's, that's part of what's being played with in the tension in the play is some people mock him for it and he is proud of it. I just meant, I, I was more pointing out that it, it's funny to me that I was uncomfortable with that when I wasn't uncomfortable with a whole bunch of other stuff in it that was just as theoretically objectionable, but I'm completely used to because that's Shakespeare and that's what you expect. So I, I just looked up the production that replaced this at the Met mm-hmm. and it updates the action to post-war England. Oh, so post, it takes place post, in the Second World War. Okay. Yeah. So it takes place in the fifties, and it's set in uh, kind of a a manner of uh, rich family that you know that mm-hmm. that era is over, and they're clinging to what they have left, and it's kind of the clash of the middle class rising, you know, in in, in right. the post war period, and then kind of butting heads with uh, the establishment. It gives you that good moral background against which to put these very moral housewives. Um, or, uh, you know, the, the wives who, who overly chased almost in that in the 1950s kind of moral setting. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it just shows you kind of what you can do with mm-hmm. interpretation and the different levels. And the thing I love about interpretation with opera is unlike the interpretation we've been seeing in this podcast where it's like, hey, we're going to have Taming of the Shrew set in a high school. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's literally we're going to keep the libretto the exact same, but the way we visually present it, that's what's going to change. Mm-hmm. And since actually half of you aren't even going to understand most of the words we're going to sing at you half the time anyhow, it really doesn't matter that much. What's important is the, how the action plays out on the stage and what you see. Yeah. 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 Um, the only other thing I have to mention, which I haven't mentioned yet, is... Uh, <laughs> They're singing in Italian, and then you'll just hear them say "Sir John Falstaff." Yes, yes. <laughs> Sir jo- or just Sir John a lot. Yeah. Sir John, yeah, I found that really funny too. <laughs> which is super, super late nineteenth century. Yeah, uh, which is maybe the most idiosyncratic thing I've ever said, but. <laughs> This is something I've always been fascinated in. You look at the history of translation of names, and there's right. this period where it just stops. And so it was really interesting for me to see that. Like, everything is in Italian, but the play is, or the, the action is still set in England. And then the names, they didn't bother changing to Italian yeah. anymore. It's Sir John Falstaff. And uh, none of it, not, not even the fact that John, okay, John is still John. It's the Sir that's the funniest part mm, of it. Yeah, is, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not even, I, whatever that would be. I don't know actually what exactly the probably like Italian. Don or something. Don, Don, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would make sense. But uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it it stood out every single time and was highly entertaining to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I mean, when I lived in Rome, one thing that was kind of touching to me as an American is there are a couple of avenues and streets named for American figures, and the one thing I found very very funny is it was clearly something that happened quickly after the American Revolution because the names were like Viale Giorgio Washington. And just hearing him <laughs> hearing him called Giorgio Washington. That's good. That's yeah. 
<laughs> All right. I, I don't know that I have much more to say about it. I enjoyed it. I've said everything that's in my notes, including animals. So I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm good too. You've made your wild theory. I don't yep. think it was very wild. Well, I think it wasn't it wild, but uh, reasonable yeah. to me. <laughs> it's unfounded by any research whatsoever. <laughs> this is a podcast, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that is what they're for. A podcast of record. <laughs> uh, oh, yes. I couldn't remember the specifics. I wanted to look it up. But there's also Via Beniamino Franklin. <laughs> Beniamino. <right>. That's cute. <laughs> Beniamino. Uh, yes. So anyway, and I don't really have anything to add or anything, any follow-ups here. Mm-hmm. So anything from you? No, other than to apologize again for the rather long uh, break between episodes. All right. Well, I'm John. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. Late breaking programming news to add. John is taking a break from podcasting for a little while. So for the next few episodes, at least, Mark and I are going to have co-hosts sitting in with us to discuss some Shakespeare movies. We're going to ask them to provide us with a movie suggestion, and then we'll discuss it together. The first co-host we're going to have is John Kelly, who writes about Shakespeare at shakespeareconfidential.com and about language at mashedradish.com, as well as elsewhere. He has suggested Chimes at Midnight, also about Falstaff. So stay tuned to hear that coming up next month. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at Alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.